0: Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview secular Buddhist Stephen Batchelor.
1: Buddhism nowadays often gets a rather sympathetic press, especially from the secular people, because it it doesn't look in some ways like a sort of a hidebound dogmatic uh, religion in the way that Christianity might to some people. But the reality on the ground is rather different.
0: If you like the show and want it to continue, Do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes, or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Stephen Batchelor. Stephen Batchelor is a well-known advocate of secular or agnostic Buddhism, and has written several books, including Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. Stephen, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here.
0: Stephen, before we talk about agnostic Buddhism, I think it would be good to be reminded of what Buddhism is and how it began. Could you tell us about the origins of Buddhism and how it developed into, for example, the Theravada and Mahayana traditions?
1: It's a very good question, uh, and it's also a very difficult one to answer briefly. And one of the reasons is because the jury is still out. Uh, And by that I mean scholars, academics, as to how these particular trends within Buddhism did, in fact, originate. But anyway, let's go back. Buddhism is the name given to the religion, the tradition, which was founded in the 4th century BC by a man called Siddhartha Gautama, who is now known as the Buddha. And Siddhartha Gautama was from a, a privileged family. He seemed to have become rather discontented with the way of his life in that world in which he lived, and at the age of 28 he left home and he started to pursue questions that we would nowadays call religious or spiritual or philosophical questions, and he did so of course in the context of his own time in India of that period, so there's inevitably elements of his teaching which reflect the worldview of ancient India. Now, what was radical about the Buddha is that he broke very much with the kind of ideas that were current in his time about what it meant to be free, what it meant to be enlightened, what it meant to be wise, compassionate, and so on. And he produced a whole other way of talking about human life and how to live it. And quite remarkably, he was able to teach for close to 45 years And much of what he said was uh, memorized and then recorded and later written down, and provides really a very rich foundation for the whole phenomenon we call Buddhism that has emerged since. Buddhism, I would argue, is primarily about recognizing with a kind of clear, mindful honesty the uh, condition we are in, which the Buddha calls Dukkha, which is usually translated as, as suffering. But it's... Mm -hmm. rather misleading basically the buddha wants us to stop and take heed of what in fact is going on in our lives the fact that we've been born the fact that we'll almost inevitably get sick grow old and die and his whole practice and his whole philosophy is is very much a way as to how we can live in this world in in a flourishing and in a meaningful way despite the fact that we live only for a brief period that the future is very unpredictable, that all kinds of stuff is going to come our way that we can't foresee. How do you negotiate that? Now, he put it in the language of his time, which was, of course, one about trying to find a state in which you no longer get reborn in the cycle of birth and death, and that's become very normative Mm -hmm. in most Buddhist schools. But nowadays, I think, you know, a lot of Westerners are going to have difficulty accepting that some of these Indian ideas are essential to what the Buddha taught and would see them rather as a kind of uh, the the context of his time that he and everyone else accepted uncritically. Now, Buddhism obviously, as we know today, has this this Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, all these different schools, and these emerged over the course of about 2,400 years, 2,500 years. And the earliest schools, there's only really one of the earliest schools that still survives, and that's a school called the Theravada School. And that school, in fact, only really flourished in Sri Lanka, and then subsequently in Southeast Asia, in Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, where it still continues to be the main form of Buddhism today. But there emerged another movement, um, which is loosely called Mahayana, which probably began... Um, around the time of Christ. Again, it's rather unsure how it began. And it's also rather unsure as to why it began. My own view uh, is that the Mahayana tradition sought to correct a kind of excessive introspection uh, and excessive self-concern that appeared to have become dominant in the early Buddhist schools around the time of Christ. And the Mahayana traditions reintroduced a more philosophical way of thinking. It was in Mahayana Buddhism you get the emphasis on the idea of emptiness, for example. And they also, and perhaps more importantly, tried to refocus um, the ethical uh, concerns of Buddhism. In other words, they saw the practice not as one whereby one sought, as with the other schools of India, simply to liberate oneself from the cycle of birth and death, becoming an arahant in the language of early Buddhism, but instead sought to model Buddhist practice more on the example of the historical Buddha himself. In other words, people started to aspire to become like the Buddha, to aspire for Buddhahood, and thereby they they took what are called the Bodhisattva vows, the, the, the vow to dedicate one's practice, one's life, not just for one's own Uh, personal well-being but for the welfare of others. So it was very much an altruistic um, movement that subsequently developed into the later forms of Buddhism in India, but we know the Mahayana traditions today primarily through the Zen school or the Pure Land school in in East Asia and the Tibetan schools that we find in Tibet and Mongolia now basically all over the world. But I think it's important when we talk about these things to highlight the fact that this is actually characteristic of Buddhism, that it is an evolving and an adapting and a changing religious culture. And that to me is a very important point, Uh, to not think that, that basically the forms we get of Buddhism today are kind of fixed for eternity, and that we simply have to surrender ourselves to the wisdom of those traditions and try and emulate them as best we can, I think we do have the uh, possibility, I think almost the imperative as Westerners today, to recognize that Buddhism itself is as impermanent and as imperfect as all the other things that it describes. And so we need, I think, to move towards a more uh, a more dynamic, a more process-based understanding of Buddhist tradition and to recognize that what's going on now in the West, in America or in Europe, is just another moment within the history of uh, a, a you know, very, very uh, long-lived and very varied and diverse tradition.
0: Yeah, you talk about how diverse it is. It seems to me that there are greater differences between the different varieties of Buddhism than there are between the major Western religions of, like, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Do you think that's right?
1: I think that may be true, yeah. Example, let's say the Christianity practiced in the Vatican with all of its pomp and ceremony. Then you go down to some, let's say, a village in South Africa where i I go sometimes, and you see the form of Christianity practice there, from the outside, you wouldn't realize it was the same thing. A Catholic mass in the Vatican, and a kind of dancing and chanting and ululating uh, group activity in an African village. The only common element would be would be the cross. Now, is Buddhism more diverse than that, in it's different forms? How, how would you make that judgment? I'm not so sure. But, on the other hand, I think There are some striking differences that are perhaps easier to, to point to, and that is that unlike Christianity and Islam, Buddhism or the various forms of Buddhism do not share a common canonical base. In other words, there's no equivalent to the New Testament. There's no equivalent to the Quran. So wherever you go in Christendom or in the Islamic world, all Christians will go back to the New Testament all Muslims will go back to the Quran and to the Hadith. You can't do the same in Buddhism. Now, there is not an equivalently authoritative text that underlies and is, in a sense, the fundamental authority for the, different, for the different schools. There are a range of common ideas that they share. There are a range of certain texts that you'll find to greater or lesser degrees in the different schools, but there's no common canon. Now, what this has meant is that each school of Buddhism has had the freedom, in a way, to construct its own canonical authorities. It draws from Indian texts primarily, but sometimes from Chinese or Tibetan texts as well, and it puts together a working uh, set of texts that speak to the condition of the people who founded that school in the first place. And so you do get a lot more diversity there. That is definitely the case. The other difference, of course, is you don't have a central authority. There's no equivalent, say, to the Vatican. You don't have, or, or let's say, some central authority of the Presbyterian churches. You don't have one transnational body that somehow represents Buddhism. Every form of Buddhism is distinctive to a particular time and a place. And so we we very markedly talk about Tibetan Buddhism, or we might talk about uh, Japanese Zen, prefixing each term with uh, the name of a country. But again, I don't think you'd talk about Iranian Islam as opposed to Saudi Arabian Islam, or Belgian Christianity as opposed to Cuban Christianity. There's a greater identity within Buddhist schools to a lineage or a tradition that is specific to that country and to that culture. And that gives rise, therefore, to a considerable degree of diversity, A diversity as great uh, between the different countries of Asia, between Japan and Tibet, between Tibet and Sri Lanka, and the forms of Buddhism that are espoused in those different places are as different, really, as those countries are from each other.
0: Now, Stephen, what are the major differences between, for example, the Theravada school and the Mahayana schools?
1: Well, the Theravada school would emphasize as its goal the attainment of nirvana, in other words, the liberation from the painful cycle of birth and death, whereas the Mahayana schools would also aspire for that, a a liberation Let's call it. Except it wouldn't be something they would seek to achieve merely for, you know, them, themselves, for any particular person. But they would see themselves as trying to create and sustain a, a cultural way of life uh, in which each bodhisattva, each altruistic practitioner would seek to be reborn, uh, to keep coming back into the world in order to, uh, until all sentient beings, all creatures were freed from from reincarnation. Um, so the goal is the same, it's just that the uh, way in which you commit yourself to realizing it is either on a purely personal le- level, which would be in the Theravada school, or it would be in a kind of global, almost universal sense, as you'd find in the Mahayana schools. Now, the Mahayana schools also um, have uh, developed forms of Buddhist philosophy. Uh, Buddhist uh, ethics to uh, that part company in detail with the earlier school of the Theravada, but frankly, pretty much every Mahayana idea that I can think of has its roots or its origins in the canonical text of the Theravada school, which is called which is called the Pali Canon. And um, to that extent, you can see the Mahayana as an outgrowth of an earlier tradition. But the Mahayana schools themselves will barely make any reference to texts within the Pali Canon. They will prefer to make references to their own canonical sutras, like the Perfection of Wisdom and others, which from uh, the viewpoint of modern scholarship were texts that were not actually spoken by the Buddha, but were composed in the centuries following his death. And so there's a there's, a, there's an ongoing dis- debate and dispute between the different schools over the authenticity of their lineages, over the authenticity of their canonical, canonical materials. But frankly, I don't think these differences are really terribly important to someone trying to practice Buddhism in the West today.
0: Now, in Western religion, Belief and doctrine are extremely important. Do uh-huh. you think they are as important in Buddhism that you believe the right things about, say, the Four Noble Truths or the uh-huh. Noble Eightfold Path or that kind of thing?
1: Oh, yes. I, 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 Buddhism nowadays often gets a rather sympathetic press, especially from the secular people, because it, lo- it doesn't look in some ways like a sort of a hidebound dogmatic uh religion in the way that christianity might to some Mm -hmm. people but the reality on the ground is rather different i mean i've lived for some years as a tibetan buddhist monk as a zen buddhist monk and certainly the forms of buddhism that are established in different asian countries have i would say pretty much all the features of established religion in any other tradition any anywhere else in the world and what that means is that you find a similar spectrum I think it's wrong to say, you know, Christianity is like this or Buddhism is like that. Every Let's take Tibetan Buddhism, for example. You have some schools that are extremely doctrinal. Um, They insist that you believe in fairly complex metaphysics um, without believing which the whole Buddhist path is not possible, so they would say. They would likewise say that you have to have an unconditional surrender and devotion to a particular teacher without whom progress on the path is not even worth thinking about. But you'll also find in Tibet, you'll find other schools, perhaps more marginal, that have a much less dogmatic, much less doctrinaire approach. Schools such as those we find in some of the Rime or, or Dzogchen lines, which are much more about you know living you know totally and fully in the present moment. Uh, that's something that, again, has resonances perhaps more with Zen or with, with some of the Vipassana approaches to Buddhism. So you'll find, like I quite, in, in, in the Theravada schools and the Zen schools, you'll find a range, which I suppose, if you were to compare them to, say, the Christian traditions, would be very much a range from the conservatives to the liberals. And that, I think, is the universal feature of people who uh, embrace or identify themselves with a particular religious confession.
0: Okay. So what is secular Buddhism or agnostic Buddhism as, <laughs> as you practice it, Stephen?
1: Well, practice I mean, I, I feel a little bit um, awkward in supposing that such things even exist. I mean, these are terms that, as far as I'm aware, I've being responsible for putting into circulation myself, not just in, entirely on my own, but I think I've had some influence in, in, in get, getting these words into currency. So therefore, I, don't, I think it's a mistake to assume that there is a kind of anything called agnostic Buddhism or secular Buddhism. Certainly, if we think that those terms are comparable to, say, Theravada Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism, they're not. They're experimental ideas, that some people in the modern world uh, feel a very strong kind of resonance with, but many traditional Buddhists find, frankly, rather alarming.
0: Mm.
1: Now, the reason I use the word agnostic is to point to the fact that, from, from my understanding, it's not necessary, if one is to be a Buddhist or to practice the Dharma, that one has to take on board the certain classical views of ancient Indian cosmology. This means that it's not, from my understanding, necessary to believe in rebirth, to believe in a a law of karma that is somehow built into the the structure of reality. Uh, It's not necessary to believe that there are different realms of existence that are invisible to the human eye. It's not necessary to entertain any kind of theories about what happens to you after death. Now, I would argue that there is a sufficient basis in early canonical texts to support that kind of approach. I'm not saying that the Buddha was an agnostic, I think that would be trying to label him with a term that would not have been really meaningful at, at, at his time, but I think his many, many of his uh, injunctions and advices, I think, are very strongly supportive of an agnostic approach. For example, he, he does say in one sutta, he says, If there is a future life, if there is a law of cause and effect, then to practice what I teach will give you benefit both here and in the afterlife. But if there is no future life, if there is no law of cause and effect, even so, to practice what I'm teaching will be the most fulfilling way you can live your life here on this earth. All words to that effect. Now, this this to me points uh, quite... Uh, clearly to the fact that the Buddha did not consider his Dhamma, his teaching, to be something that was premised upon a particular uh, metaphysical view of the world. In other words, theories hmm. about what happens after death, death, and so on. Yeah. And he also, in, in, in many passages, states how his practice is therapeutic. It's about responding to the problem of suffering here and now. It is not about uh, coming up with a complete explanation of how the world came to be. So I see the Buddha's teaching as a very strong therapeutic and pragmatic emphasis that goes right back to the Buddha himself, and is quite disinterested or even uh, dismissive of speculative theories about rebirth, karma, different realms, etc., etc. So agnostic Buddhism, as I would see it, is basically the practicing of the Dharma, or all of those elements of the Dharma, the practice of meditation, the practice of ethics, the practice of of wisdom, but without having to embrace or accept beliefs in things that we can neither prove nor disprove. Uh, To me, to believe in rebirth and karma in Buddhism is very much like having to believe in God to be a Christian. It's something you you can't refute, that there is rebirth, but on the other hand, you can't ever, I doubt, frankly, if it will ever be demonstrated, or at least it hasn't been demonstrated yet. If it were, then I would accept it. So far, it hasn't. So that's, I think, the reason I would say agnostic. The reason I'd use the word secular, which, frankly, is what I'm more inclined to do at the moment, is because I want to emphasize how Buddhist practice and a Buddhist life has a great deal to offer Uh, to people living in this world here and now and confronting the sort of issues that all of us are concerned about in this day and age. In other words, to focus one's Buddhist practice entirely upon the suffering of this world and nothing else. There was no thought of what happened after death or no thought of how I came to be here before I was born, but simply to say, yes, this is where I am. This is where I know things for sure here is the only place of which I can have any certainty that there are people on this planet, there are animals on this planet, there's a complex uh, network of living systems on this planet, and that is the only thing I can be sure of. Everything else is speculation. So therefore, my practice as a Buddhist, to be mindful, to be wise, to be caring, has to focus itself entirely on the concerns of this world. Uh, That's really what I mean by secular. Secular, remember, comes from the Latin word seculum, which means uh, this time or this age or this place. Uh, It doesn't mean, as it's usually used today, as meaning anti-religious, secular versus religious. I don't see, frankly, why one could not have a secular religion. And in fact, I would like to think of Buddhism that way, at least the Buddhism that I aspire to myself, is one in which I'm fully committed to the primary values of the Dharma, but as a means to respond to life on this planet, in this world here and now. And if there is anything after death, then frankly, I think that's the best way to prepare for it anyway.
0: Well, Stephen, it sounds like you're saying, okay, Siddhartha, you said that this would be a great way to go, whether or not there is this cycle of rebirth. And... Right now it seems like there's no evidence for that, um, but I'm going to take up that part of your suggestion. Mm-hmm. Now, Stephen, your book is called Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, which is oh, a third term. So why are you throwing uh, all these terms at us?
1: Why am I throwing all these terms at us? Well, that's a good point, actually, Luke. I'm using these terms... And in fact, I'm deliberately changing the language, because I think all of these terms, agnostic, secular, atheistic, let's say humanist—we can throw that into the mix too, if you like.
0: Not another one.
1: Yes, another one, and I'm sure there are many more. (laughs) You see, the thing is, I think all of these terms are basically talking about different facets of the same thing. So, I don't think it's a question of am I an agnostic, am I an atheist, am I a secularist, am I a humanist. I can be all of the above. They're not mutually contradictory terms. Uh, they quite explicitly challenge Buddhism and Buddhists to address questions about, well, what does Buddhism have to say to humanism? What is the, the Buddhist att- attitude to atheism, agnosticism, secularism? These are issues of our time. These are identities that many people who practice Buddhism will in some way or another have some allegiance to. Atheist is probably the least controversial because Buddhism is, you know, by definition, a non-theistic tradition. There is no creator God, there is no sense of any sort of divine redemption, no idea of some sort of unconditioned reality that somehow is the ground of being or anything like that. But what I've observed, both in myself and in, 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 in others I know, is that Buddhism has a, a kind of a, a tendency to sort of slip back almost to the kind of default assumptions of theism. And so you start getting Buddhists who'll be talking about things like Buddha nature or the one mind or some terms like that, which frankly are kind of God getting in through the back door. In other words, positing some kind of unconditioned reality, some transcendent reality, some absolute truth that is not a human in- invention. It's not something that is a construct of this conditional, impermanent world, but actually is some kind of higher level of reality. Now, that to me is just God speak in non-personal theistic terms. So the reason I want to highlight an atheist is to remind Buddhists that actually this is an atheist tradition. And one has to think through the implications of that. One has to be careful and to be mindful of how one's thinking can so easily slip back into kind of, you know, theistic-like ideas. Uh, I would argue that there's a strong agnostic tendency in Buddhism, which implies an an emphasis on inquiry, an an emphasis on testing things out, on on an emphasis on not just assuming we know something because it's in some text, but... An emphasis to try to know that for ourselves before deciding whether we believe in it or not. Secular, again, what does Buddhism have to say to this world, to this life now? So what I'm trying to do is just trying to refocus the concerns of the Buddhist traditions we have today and the Buddhists in the world who are trying to put them into practice and just cast the light onto these particular areas of, of contemporary culture. And I think it's in that sort of dialogue, in that interaction, that something can begin to move, that we can perhaps begin to have a dialogue, uh, an exchange in which something might germinate, some other way of doing the Dharma could begin to emerge and develop uh, in such a way that would be appropriate and would be specific to the particular needs we have at our time today, rather than simply trying to uh, preserve or to, or to just keep repeating uh, practices and, and, and thoughts and ideas that were standard, say, in 14th century Tibet or 17th century Japan.
0: Now Stephen, what does it mean for you to be a secular Buddhist? Like what when you get up in the morning, what do you do? Do you read scripture? What what do you think about? How you try to what attitudes and desires do you try to cultivate within yourself? What are your ethical views? Uh-huh. What's the thrust or purpose of your life in terms of secular Buddhism? What does that mean as living a life as a secular Buddhist?
1: Okay, well, I mean, that's again, uh, it's a little difficult to give a, a very clear answer to that because I'm, I can't see the forest because of the trees, if you get my metaphor. I'm too close to these ideas, and also I haven't really thought through all the implications even myself. But um, I don't go around thinking of myself as a secular Buddhist, for a start. Uh, I don't find these labels, in terms of giving me a core identity, really terribly helpful. I find them as, as kind of reminders of a certain emphasis I wish to focus in my practice. Um, so, for example, um, for me, the, 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 the aim of my life as a practicing Buddhist is to cultivate the Eightfold Path. Now, the difference there is that I'm not saying the aim of my life as a Buddhist is to achieve Nirvana. I think there's quite a difference there. To me, the emphasis is on the fourth noble noble truth, the Eightfold Path, not the third, the cessation of suffering. As long as we're in this world, we're going to suffer. There's no way around that, I'm afraid. Uh, we, 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 We have been born, we'll get sick, we'll grow old and we'll die. That's the framework within which a secular perspective necessarily operates. Now, the difference between a Buddhist approach to that and, let's say, a sort of materialist, hedonist one, is that we take those questions seriously. That I meditate and I dwell and I reflect fairly um, uh, constantly, not all the time obviously, but in a serious and an ongoing way on the questions such as what does it mean to have been born? Um, How can I live my life most fully in an awareness that it might end at any moment? So death, in other words, doesn't become just a gateway to another rebirth or to another existence, which from my point of view is actually a way of denying death. It's a way of of, of removing its power. The real power of death um, is that it makes us aware that our life here is running out, and if we wish to realize value and meaning and purpose, we need to do so with a considerable degree of urgency. Now all of this is going to therefore affect what one considers to be one's priorities in life if i knew that i only had six months to live for example what would i do a lot of trivia would go out the window straight away so as a secular buddhist i'm trying to find a way to live my life in such a way that i flourish in all aspects of my humanity the eightfold path for me um Not just for me, I think it's fairly straight straight, uh, straight a four. The Eightfold Path is not just about becoming proficient in meditation. There's too much Buddhism nowadays, which reduces Buddhist practice to becoming good at doing certain meditative techniques. It's become highly privatized. It's become, I think in some ways, almost solipsistic and self-referring. And it sees the accomplishment of, say, some insight or some some revelation in meditation as being the goal of the practice. I don't think it is. I don't dismiss the importance of such experiences in meditation, but I see them not as the goal. I see them as an affirmation or, let's say, an opening into living our lives more fully and totally in the world with others in the kind of situations we find ourselves from day to day. In other words, the Eightfold Path um, may be rooted in a, certain inner experiences but it only finds its form it only finds its expression through what we think and what we say and what we do and how we work and how we focus our energies and then it talks about being mindful and being concentrated and so on and all of that eightfold path is of course one of the four noble truths and therefore is the is is integral to our whole relationship with suffering so um, I suppose, therefore, in brief, that um, my Buddhist practice is one I found that has sensitised me uh, to the transience of my own life. It has sensitised me to the uh, the poignancy uh, and, and the tragic dimension that characterises all life, and it has given me a certain sense of urgency to try to do something about it. Uh, I'm not so arrogant as to think that I will somehow save the world from its miseries, but I do think that through my writing and through my, my te- te- teaching and so on, I can somehow try to suggest to people other ways of living their lives that will be perhaps be less governed by their attachments and their fears and their hatreds and their intolerances and get people to reflect more upon themselves in the same way as I hope I reflect for myself. Uh, and thereby, uh, not only in a, uh, cultivating one's own inner quali- one's own qual- qualities, but also uh, being an, ex- an example to others, uh, trying to live a life that others may seek to emulate. Um, that, to me, is very important. Uh, and, and part of that also, which doesn't get mentioned in Buddhism, is the, is the great importance of of, of, of creative imagination, um, of, of of not just repeating what the Buddhist tradition has always told us but actually taking the principles and asking oneself, but how does this apply here? What does it mean to be mindful? What does it mean to be compassionate? These are just very general abstractions. How am I compassionate in this situation now with my mother-in-law and the guy from the bank? How am I um, uh, uh, wise, uh, let's say, in some, resolving some moral dilemma? It has to be applied issues here and now. Uh, Otherwise, Buddhism, you you can be a very good Buddhist by doing certain amounts of meditation every day, going on long retreats, um, cutting yourself off a bit from the hustle and the bustle of the world as the Buddhist monk, you know, as an exemplar is meant to do. Um, But I don't really feel that Buddhism in that way is really going to engage with the issues, with the cultures of our time. And I feel it would be a great tragedy if that didn't happen. So my own work is very much about trying to channel some of these wonderful ideas and practices and insights that we find in the Buddhist traditions and bringing them to life uh, in a contemporary setting and being willing to discard um, the bits of it that don't really work anymore.
0: Now, Stephen, you are applying Buddhism to today's world and like you just said, uh, leaving behind the parts that don't work anymore but my question would be why start with buddhism in the first place i mean the doctrines of buddhism that you incorporate into your current you know scientifically informed mm-hmm. worldview were conceived when humanity was astonishingly ignorant about the true nature of reality and so maybe those doctrines that were conceived in that world just don't fit so well anymore. So wouldn't it be better to just abandon them and 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 you know, just junk the whole thing and construct your worldview entirely from the point of view of our current knowledge? And maybe it would end up looking a lot like Buddhism, but you'd at least be starting from the best knowledge that we have now Mm -hmm. rather than trying to kind of mangle old doctrines to make them fit the current world.
1: Um... Well, I mean, sometimes that, that does occur to me, that um, why bother calling myself a Buddhist at all? Now, um, and a lot of Buddhists would be quite happy if I didn't. And that's perhaps one of the reasons I continue to do so. <laughs> the um, <laughs> the, the um, It's a complicated question, firstly, because uh, from a purely personal point of view, uh, my whole adult life from the age of 19 has been immersed in Buddhism and, no- and in nothing else at all, basically. Well, no, that's not quite true. Um, No, of course, I've read widely in many other traditions. But in terms of my core uh, passion uh, that has been with me since the age of 19 or 20, um, Mm -hmm. it's all been about trying to make sense of Buddhism, and not from an objective, detached point of view, but rather as as myself as the guinea pig. I see my life really as an attempt, not just to know a lot about Buddhism, but actually to try and do it to the best of my capabilities and see what happens. So my life and my work are basically the ongoing outcomes of my experiment with myself. Now, for that reason alone, it would be dishonest, I think, of me to say, I'm not a Buddhist because I clearly am drawing all or a huge degree of my ideas and my my views and my understandings from the tradition we call Buddhism. So there's a, the issue, therefore, just of simple personal honesty and integrity. The other thing is that I actually do believe that I am a Buddhist. I do uh, find that the, the person in human history who's been the greatest source of inspiration for my own life is Siddhartha Gautama. So in that sense, I'm quite definitely a Buddhist. Now, the elements of the Buddhist uh, uh, teaching of the 4th century BC, which, as you quite correctly say, was a world in which so much of what we currently know about the world and the universe and everything simply didn't exist, then the way to deal with that, in my mind, is to make a, a very clear differentiation between those elements of the Buddha's teaching that are, as he himself described, timeless, and those elements that we find in the Buddha's teaching that are clearly derivative from the worldview of ancient India. Now, if you can perform that operation, and this is something I try to do in my books, is basically to discard the elements that are essentially pre-modern, pre-scientific, mythical, perhaps even superstitious uh, ways of understanding, that all of that can go out the window. And curiously, when you start making this sort of uh, surgery on Buddhism, you find that the bits that are not relevant, don't appear to jive with modernity at all, are precisely the elements that Buddhism shares in common with Hinduism. In other words, a tradition that has never managed to break outside of the Indian subcontinent, it's very ethnically identified with being Indian. It's all those elements, the Hindu, the Indian elements of Buddhism, that I feel we need to let go of, in order that we can see more clearly what it was the Buddha was saying in 400 BC, which speaks just as clearly to my condition today. And one of the most remarkable things, I find, in reading some of these ancient Pali texts, is that they seem to be speaking directly to where I'm at right now, uh, and they don't need to be interpreted or read symbolically. They're very direct. Um, you know, the whole the whole emphasis on dukkha, on on suffering, on impermanence, on conditionality. I find, frankly, that the modern scientific view of the world, particularly uh, the one that we gain through biology and through uh, cosmology, and so on, are actually the most wonderful illustrations of, of the principles that the Buddha introduced. The idea of, of, of con- contingency or conditionality, which the Buddha identified as the very heart of his teaching, is, 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 is most wondrously explicated in, say, the theory of evolution, or in <laughs> the theory of the Big Bang and the emergence of the cosmos. Of course, the Buddha didn't describe that stuff, but he founded his vision of human life on principles that are very much at the core of the modern understanding of the world. So I don't think uh, in that regard these Buddhist ideas are somehow antiquated old uh, stuff from pre-B.C. India, uh, but actually seem to have a curious relevance to us as we uh, live in this world now. And again, likewise, you can see how Buddhism... Uh, unlike Hinduism, has managed to successfully cross many cultural frontiers through its history. The way it developed in China, for example, is a very good example of what's going on in the West now. China and India were very different cultures. We think of them as the East. But before Buddhism came to China, there was really no contact between them at all. And yet China was able to adopt Buddhist ideas and values and practices and reconfigure them in a way that was distinctively Chinese, ditto Japanese, Korean, Tibetan, whatever. And that, to me, you see, shows how modernity, Western-style modernity, is just another culture that Buddhist ideas are now impacting and is, I believe, is potentially able to generate another kind of way of doing Buddhism that is as much modern and scientific as uh, Chinese Zen, for example, with Taoist and Confucianist. So Buddhism, I think, in one sense, is transcultural, um, trans-ethnic, uh, um, whereas there are many elements of it that are clearly much tied to specific historical, cultural, and ethnic ideas uh, in the ancient world. Hmm. So that's my answer to that question.
0: Now, Stephen, what do you think would be the main benefits to someone who might be interested to take up a kind of secular Buddhism as their way of life?
1: Difficult to answer that in the abstract, really, Um, because uh, obviously it's going, you know, who is this someone? I mean, this someone. And again, okay, let's just step back a minute. One of the things that, to me, is probably—I is, don't know—I I don't read the future. But one of the things that I think might happen in the West is that Buddhism might go grow out of its having to be uh, a religious institution or any kind of mass movement. The trouble with churches or with Buddhist traditions is that they tend quite quickly to become rather conservative and to become rather authoritarian. And the idea is, if you go and practice, say, a brand of Zen Buddhism, let's say Dogen Soto Zen in Japan, then to succeed in that tradition means you basically have to conform yourself to the precepts and the um, and the ideals of that school. In other words, you mm-hmm. kind of sign up for becoming a bit like Dogen. Now, nowadays, I think the practice. Is liable to become far more individuated. This is already happening. In other words, Buddhist practice is not going to be something that you have, you know, you you just sort of do what tradition has always told you to do. But rather, Buddhist practice can be something which you can, in a way, um, develop according to your own needs. In other words, um, depending upon your temperament, your psychological makeup, make, make your, your history as a young person, your inclinations in terms of what you are drawn to do in your work, all of that will configure a slightly different spin on how your Buddhist practice, your secular Buddhist practice might work out. So I don't think of secular Buddhism or agnostic Buddhism as being at all like Soto Zen or or the Nyingma School in Tibetan Buddhism, but rather as sort of frameworks or contexts within which to draw inspiring ideas and values and meditation practices perhaps in such a way that you can, as it were, use them as means to create and cultivate your own self, your own person. And likewise, since we always invariably do this in communities and groups, to start evolving uh, you know, local uh, Buddhist-type uh, cultures or ways of thinking um, that are not beholden to some grand authority, but are emerging out of people's own lived experiences uh, in the specificity of their own lives. Uh, and so, if someone were to come to me, as they do on my retreats, for example, um, then I don't really have an, a plan, a kind of a training. Uh, a system or a set of stages that people need to go through to become bona fide secular Buddhists but rather um, I offer as it were a range of tools a range of um, a- a strategies both meditative, ethical, philosophical and people can use those as they find them to be working in the context of their specific lives, and each person's practice therefore um, will be different and I think that's a good thing. I, I don't find it a problem to pick and mix different approaches. I think that's one of the great richnesses of our modern world, is that there's so much, uh, there is so much available from the diverse Buddhist traditions that we can try and put into practice now. And I feel very excited about this. I think it's a very, a very um, um, promising, and, and uh, ho- hopefully uh, fruitful situation that we find ourselves in now. Um, so that's, yeah, that's all I can say, really.
0: And Stephen, if people want to learn more, you have your books available on your website and also some talks that people can listen to. And you just mentioned now some kind of training program? I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. And you just mentioned now some kind of d- training program? Oh, training or, program
1: right. what was Well, that? I don't have that. The only thing that I can direct people towards are my books. Is okay, that, I see. That, is, is, that, is that what you were getting at? I was a bit distracted. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, well you said something about, you know, if, if someone came to me in one of mm-hmm. my camps or something, I can't remember what it was. Oh,
1: I'm sorry, in one of my retreats.
0: Retreats, right.
1: Yes, I lead retreats. That's my main form of teaching. I, I, I give seminars and lectures in the context of meditation retreats. Hmm. That, that, that's what I spend half the year doing.
0: And where, where do you do those? All over the world?
1: All over the world. I mean, in Europe, uh, in England, um, Holland. I'm just listing the places I've been this year uh, England, Holland, Austria, Italy, the um, United States, Canada. And then later in this year, we're going, my wife and I are going to Australia New Zealand. Uh, so we teach wherever we're invited. Um, but we don't have a school, we don't have a training pro- program at all. Um, perhaps one day that will emerge, but I'm rather rather wary of such developments, frankly, uh, because that seems to be the, almost the inevitable first step towards the kind of institu- institutionalization. Mm-hmm. And I'm, we- I'm wary of institutionalization. But I'm also aware that I'm somehow um, not delivering I get a lot of people who email me and say, oh, I read your book, Mr. Bunch, wonderful stuff. Where can I go to practice that? I get this a lot. And I I do feel that I'm letting people down in not being able to say, oh, well, you can sign up to my 10-week internet course or you can come to my center in San Francisco. I don't have anything like that. Uh, I don't think that's particularly my forte. I've been involved in setting up and running Buddhist centers I'm not very good at it and I certainly don't enjoy it I think my strength lies as a, a thinker as a gadfly as a critic um, as a student and I share what I do and I share what I discover but I'm not in the business of setting up organizations so I do feel I leave people hanging but I give them some ideas about secular Buddhism for example but no follow through so again I uh, People, I feel, need to become more autonomous and self-reliant in their spiritual and religious practices, and the danger with any kind of organization is people, people become overly identified with it, often in a somewhat sectarian manner, and I think become sometimes rather childishly, uh, uh tied to it, and unable, as it were, to uh, grow up. I think that's often a problem. Uh, People become very devout, but they stop thinking for themselves. And I don't think that's what the Buddha had in mind.
0: Hmm. Well, Stephen, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Luke.
0: In the next episode, I'll be interviewing philosopher Valerie Tiberius about wisdom and well-being. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot.